KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, it's Matt Leon. Dr. Karen Weaver has been a frequent guest on our sister podcast, KYW News Radio In Depth. She's really our go to person when it comes to the world and business of college sports. She's an adjunct assistant professor and academic director at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. She's a former college athlete, college coach, and administrator, and she has the rare ability to look at college sports from every angle and tell you not just the what, but also the why. Now, she has authored a new textbook called Sports Finance, Where the Money Comes From and Where the Money Goes, and it's designed to help educate people who are trying to get into the world of sports as a career. We talked to her about the book and what's in it, and I think you'll find this conversation interesting. Check it out. So the book, a textbook, Sport Finance, Where the Money Comes From and Where the Money Goes, kind of give me the origin story here, because you've talked with me and educated me about the ins and outs of the business of college sports, but this is more, much more broad-reaching. You're talking sports as a whole. Kind of give me the, the background on this. Yeah, so before I started writing for Forbes, I would occasionally write op-eds for different newspapers. So I wrote an op-ed for the New Jersey Star-Ledger about Rutgers, and at that time they were in yet another mess in terms of their football spending and athletic spending. They were probably firing another coach. And I wrote a lot about their finances and how difficult it was, even though they had transitioned into the Big Ten, uh, how how far behind the eight ball they were. And uh, one of the um, uh, representatives of the publishing company read the article and reached out to me and said, look, uh, we're Kendall Hunt Publishers. They said, we don't have a sport finance um, book in our portfolio. Would you be interested in writing one? I took a look at the finance books that were out there already. And there's some really good ones. Um, folks have been writing about this for a very long time. Um, but they all had a very financial analyst angle that I thought it would it fits a narrow stream, but not a wide stream. And I, and I reflected on the conversations that I had with my students in my classes and everybody just loves to talk about the money, the money behind it. Where where does it come from? How much does it cost to be an owner? What does that stadium cost? Who's paying for it? What's the salary of that player? How many years do they owe the salary? What's the salary cap? How can they get under the... These are the questions that I heard my students talking about. I thought, you know what? Maybe we can look at this book differently. Maybe we can put together um, 15 chapters of a, of a survey of all of the sports industry. So let's say you're a student who comes to my class or anybody's class and says, I really know baseball. I know baseball really well. I know how the salary caps work. I know all about how the negotiations work. And the, pro- the first thing you'll probably do is go to the baseball chapter and make sure that everything we wrote was right. But what I hope you'll do is then say, well, then how does that compare to the NFL? Or how does that compare to the NBA and the WNBA? And one of the things that I learned in putting this process together was each one of these systems developed independently. And so there's really 15 different financial structures going on here, uh, even though they have common accounting principles across and how they how they measure capital gains and all those things are consistent. Each sport developed in its own system based on the people who influenced it and the marketplace that they operate in. So we decided to break it down into 15 different chapters. And if you're okay with it, I'll just run through the list and um, and tell you what they are. Sure thing. 
So the first one is called Introduction to Sports Finance, and it walks the, the student or the reader through how being aware of financial basics is critical to working in the sports industry. Even if you're working on the community development side for the Philadelphia Phillies, you've got to have an understanding of why those finances matter to the organization. The second chapter, my favorite, is the business of sports media. How does the media ecosystem work? Where does the money come from there? How important is that media revenue to these various entities? The next one is the business of college sports. How does that work? So many people have an understanding of how Division I works, but they don't understand how facilities get built on campuses. There's another trend happening now, these mega recreational complexes. If you go out to Conshohocken, you look at places like the Proving Grounds or where other places where there's 50 or 60 fields, there's 30 or 40 indoor volleyball courts. There's these mega complexes are developing um, huge followings and driving lots of revenue to local communities. So we did an entire chapter on mega recreational complexes. And then we also compared that to how do we build stadiums for professional teams? Fans of Philadelphia will, will remember that there was a time when we had three stadiums in South Philadelphia, none of which exist anymore. And we've now replaced them with two stadiums and, and a casino complex. And the question is, how does that happen? How does that work behind the scenes? How does the bond ratios get uh, paid for? How, how much does the city kick, kick in? How much does the state kick in? Then we take a look at a youth sports enterprise. And we had former Major League Baseball player Eric Munson and his wife run a baseball mega camp out in Iowa write about how they do their finances. How do you run a base, a youth sports enterprise that goes year round? We then looked at, of course, this new field of the business of esports and the explosion of money and revenues and, and talent that exists in that space and how much it is being latched on to other professional organizations like soccer, like basketball. And so where that's coming from. And then we look, of course, then at baseball, we look at the business of professional soccer. We then take an entire chapter to look at the business of women's sports and pay equity, since those are such big numbers right now. And the fact that women's sports is growing so fast in this last year, it deserved its own, cha its own chapter. We look at the business of both the NBA and the WNBA, since they are owned by one umbrella organization. We look at the business of the NFL, the business of the NHL, and the business of the Olympics. And then finally, we look at the future trends in sports finance. Which one of these chapters, these topics, was the most illuminating for you? I mean, as someone who has worked in athletics at all different levels, knows how the sausage is made, where would you say you learned the most or discovered the most? I think it was in the intersections of the chapters because I think it was the idea that I, I kind of expected to see the same financial model, at least through some of these organizations. But it, there's many different ways to build this. And it really informed me that there's a lot of outside the box thinking happening in these professional sports organizations, in these organizations that drive billions and billions of dollars of wealth and, and revenue and salaries and employment. So I, I, what I think, it, I hope it will help people to see is what I saw 
is that there, we can think about sports and how to grow the pie in multiple ways and not just in the way we've always done it. You mentioned the youth sports and the, the mega recreational complex of which a large section is youth sports. I guess my question is like, is it healthy to have this much revenue dependent on like the five to 12 years of age? <laughs> or five to 17, maybe yeah. you know, yeah, that type of thing. I don't know, but it's, it's huge. It's a massive business. And there are these companies, you look at IMG Academy in Florida and they have turned into a, an enterprise that is just massive in terms of player development in tennis, in baseball and basketball. And I think um, people have realized that there's a marketplace for that because they build school on that campus. They build an entire recruiting pipeline on that campus. And then not too far down the road, IMG's in Bradenton. And then not too far down the road in Orlando is the Disney wide, wide world of sports complex, which perfectly complements their business model and trying to get families to be near Disney world to then leave the complex and go to Disney World for the day. So sports, as a tourism driver, <clears throat> as a revenue driver, it, is, it will always be there. It will always be massive in terms of doing this. The business of esports is something I think a lot of people just think, oh, well, it's just kids playing video games. And it kind of gets a, if you dig into this at all, this is really massive, and I think this is going to be a driving force, a more mainstream driving force over the next decade than people remotely realize. If we think of America being part of the world ecosystem, esports in Asia and parts of Europe right now is massive. And one of the most interesting conversations I had with my author was this business of de was developing high-speed technology to actually wire continents from one to the other. For example, it was a really big deal last fall when the University of Hawaii allowed for the esports group at their campus to access the high-speed line that ran underneath the Pacific Ocean to Japan and China so that they could then host massive games there because they had the fastest connections in the world. And you don't think about technology really mattering in sports, but it matters a huge way when you don't have that lag time in the way the players are playing the game. So as our broadband gets stronger in this country, as we do a better job of not just taking care of the coast, but taking care of the middle part of the country, esports is going to do nothing but grow. I'm curious, putting this together, putting together a textbook in the middle of a pandemic specifically with chapter on the Olympics. And we just had the Tokyo Olympics, which were pushed back a year. And then they had to basically do them with no to little fans, college sports, because of the pandemic, we have seen, you know, seismic changes on multiple different levels. How difficult was it trying to, to put something together to be a teaching tool in a time where nothing is rooted in what in, in in definite situations well you could probably argue that the textbook should have been out a year ago but um most of the folks who contributed to writing either parts of chapters or full chapters were also 
uh, ensconced in trying to deal with their pandemic issues, whether it be working from home, whether it be the fa- the kids are home and I need to homeschool them, or in the case of the uh, baseball academy in Iowa, they shut down. So there was there was nothing for them to do, and all they could figure out was how are we going to pay the rent on our facility next month. So I had folks who were deeply engrossed in their own problems and challenges. And it was really hard for all of us to think about what is this going to mean for sport? When the NBA had their and the WNBA had their bubble last summer, that's when I think people started to realize that we're going to come out of this. So it allowed folks to start thinking about the what's next. And all of us are in agreement that sports is not going to go back to the way it was. It's going to move forward. And because of the acceleration of change in the technology space, it is going to change faster and faster and faster. And one of the things that I was very sensitive to is I wanted this book to be as up to date as possible when it went to print. And literally at the last minute, we were making changes like the NHL out of the 32nd franchise in Seattle, the Seattle Kraken, which upended their, their different uh, divisions and their realignment in there. So staying on top of what was going on with the changes in sport and recognizing that any book like this is always going to feel like it's not quite caught up. We wanted to give folks a good foundation of where these sports develop their financial structures and then also how fast they've evolved in the last maybe five or 10 years. In your opinion, of all these structures, was there one that jumped out as the most, I don't know, for lack of a better the most sound, the most, the one, I guess just the most impressive because most of these leagues are printing money. So, you know, you say sound like they're ready to go on, but were there any that just really jumped out as to the the way they're put together, how they handle their business and maybe being cutting edge and ahead of the curve, stuff like that. And this is going to sound so uh, predictable, but the NFL, I mean, they have, they just are functioning on all cylinders they came out with a with a contract, a media contract in the middle of this that fully recognized that their value, they could raise the value of each franchise by partnering with multiple media uh, outlets, you know, Fox, NBC, CBS, uh, across multiple streaming services, across Twitch, across different platforms. And they were the first con- uh, league to do that in this era. Um, I would look for the NBA and the WNBA to do the next the next grade because I think Adam Silver is that smart in all of this. But I also think the owners are dictating this as well because the owners are starting to become more and more tech tech um, folks. Steve Ballmer is a huge uh, owner and a, a, he's with the LA Clippers. So folks are going more and more into the tech space. But I think the NFL has settled enough that even though they've got some real characters on the NFL ownership side, they understand that they want to still see their investments grow nine to 10% every year. And so they're going to come together to make sure that happens. The business of women's sports and pay equity. I think the U S women's soccer team kind of brought the, the pay equity uh, idea to the forefront. And it's been a part of the national discourse kind of take me inside that chapter just as far as how much of it is a look of where we are now and how much of it is maybe a little bit of a roadmap to get to where we need to be. Well, some of the chapter is about the emerging women's sports. So we talk about the WNBA and the NBA chapter. So we separated that because that has really evolved. That has really matured. 
And it deserves comparison alongside the NBA back when the NBA was maybe in the 70s. at sort of the maturation point where the WNBA is now. But we looked at the NWSL. We looked at that growth. We looked at the National Women's Hockey League, which primarily started as a Canadian-focused league, but has, has grown and started to have some real interest. We looked at the National Pro Fast Pitch League, which has a very unusual model because they give their athletes equity. Instead of the coaches and the owners getting equity, the athletes get equity. So these are very loosely structured models because, as you probably know, some of these franchises don't survive from one year to the next. They might have a new owner who moves them to another town where they can get a better stadium deal. So it's really hard to build some loyalty in them. But every one of them realizes that the, the trend now in women's athletics is that smart investors are seeing this as the best chance to grow their investment. They'll be the fastest acceleration on the women's sports side, simply because the men's sports has been has matured. It really has not not there's not much more room to grow except on the tech and media side. But on the women's side, there's all that room to grow, to grow the sport. And I think we've really seen that in the viewership, the numbers of, of folks who are tuning in to watch different women athletes. The fact that we can say Simone Biles and, and people know who that is and don't have to think twice about it. So I wanted, we wanted to try to capture that momentum. And honestly, in writing it in the middle of this, it really struck me as to how much the narrative shifted around at the beginning of this year, the beginning of 2021, all of a sudden people were really paying attention to women. March Madness happened where we had the inequities between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. And you could just tell that people were exhausted by this. They're like, get your act together, sports people. Women do play sports. So that's why we thought it deserved a chapter. Yeah, and I think to your point about growth, I am really amazed it's taken this long for people to realize that you want to talk about explosive growth. This, the women's sports, that's where the, you know, you talk about like getting on the ground floor of stuff. That's where it is right there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you have innovative leaders like Kathy Engelbert, who's the commissioner of the WNBA, who says, look, I'm going to not only look at this as a marketing opportunity for what the game is as we currently know it, but we're actually going to try to create some new metrics to measure engagement in women's sports. So we used to think of engagement as who is watching the game on TV. Well, we know Gen X, Gen Z are not paying attention to games on linear or cable television. They're consuming games and content in different ways. So there's a whole new movement in trying to capture and monetize and measure social media posts, social media engagements, how much time people spend on an app or a team. And, you know, even in arenas now, um, they're trying to get you to download the app so they can pay attention to exactly how much time you're on your app and what you're reading while you're in the arena. So there's all kinds of ways that we're looking at changing the narrative around monetizing a sport. And you mentioned you had people help write certain chapters. How, about how many people, how many contributors did you have under this umbrella? Yeah, I had, I had about 12 spread over uh, tw uh, 11 chapters. I was responsible for four of them, either as a co-author or as an author. And sometimes I had 
four four different authors, like the eSports chapter had four different authors because we needed a young perspective on it. Other times I just had one author in a chapter, just depending on what their um, strengths were and how much time they felt they had to devote to it. What was the most satisfying part of this whole exercise for you? I, I just learned a ton. I mean, I, I really learned a ton. I'm very grateful for Kendall Hunt giving me the opportunity to try something different, to try to not think of this just as a textbook for freshmen or sophomores or juniors in college, but to think of it as a way for sports fans to learn more about the things that they care so much about in a way that hopefully, hopefully is relatable. So seeing it, and Matt, you know, the day it arrives as a hard copy is a big day. You know, it's a really big day. But to have the opportunity to kind of get people to think about sports a little bit differently, that's what I'm most excited about. And we mentioned it's a textbook and this is a text. Like yeah. what uh, what courses, what majors would kind of this fall under the umbrella that that uh, places would offer this as a as one of their textbooks? Certainly in any sport business program, because uh, there's always at least one course in finance, if not a second course in economics. But this would be a good one. It could be a good one for an introduction to sport. It's a sport management class. It could be a good, good use for media since we talk about so much media woven all the way through this. My um, hope is they would also use it in business classes because they know that the students are interested in sports and they might be able to find some common financial principles across multiple sport organizations. So that's what I'm hoping for.